Welcome to the Richard Blackby Leadership Podcast, helping people take their leadership to the next level. Brought to you by Blackby Ministries International. Welcome again to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast. It's good to have you guys with us, and I uh, hope you've had a, a good week. And I hope that uh, this last little series that we did on uh, the seasons of God and the seasons of, of your leadership uh, has been helpful, maybe helped you look at your life and look at your leadership in perhaps a different light, and, and maybe that uh, has maybe you've turned over a new leaf, as it were. Anyways, we, we want to be shifting a little bit now, and, and every once in a while we're, we're going to do this new little series that we're calling Biographies of Leaders or something like that. I'll probably have to give that more thought. Um, there's just mass amounts of biographies, autobiographies on some of the great leaders throughout history. And, and Richard, when I look in your office and see your your shelves, maybe the largest, second largest category of book is biography. If I yeah. do, you know how how many? I haven't counted them, but it is the largest section in my library. It's, okay, yeah, is is biographies. Okay, okay. What is it about a, a leader that that initially piques your interest, and then from there, uh, how do you go about selecting a biography? Because I'm sure tons of people write about various leaders. Yeah. Well, you know, the proverb says, if you hang around fools, you become a fool. And my father taught me early on that if I hang around certain people, I'll pick things up from them. So obviously, every time I get around uh, a great leader, if I can have lunch with them or just ask some questions, spend some time in their presence, I, I grab those opportunities. But through biographies, you can get around anybody. I can actually spend an afternoon with Caesar or with uh, Hannibal or Alexander the Great or Napoleon, and uh, that's pretty awesome that you can actually just rub shoulders with them and learn from them and understand their view of strategy and working with people and so on. And so I have always been attracted to biographies because it gets me next to people that I could never be around otherwise. And so that the first thing I'd say is, and I also, I, I of course, one of the second largest, perhaps, sections of my library are leadership books. And I, I read lots of leadership books, and we're going to take some time in the coming uh, podcast to focus on some of the best leadership books that I've read. Yeah, just a quick teaser. We, we want to also do a, uh, a segment on just kind of dissecting various leadership uh, books that are on the subject of leadership. And we want to treat that kind of like a book club, even. Yeah. So we'll, we'll let you guys know. Uh, what's coming up, um, and you can read along with us, and, and then we can have a discussion about... Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about... Well, of course, we'll have some podcasts where we just focus on a leadership topic, but perhaps every fourth podcast or so, we'll just focus in on a biography, and maybe every fourth podcast or so, I want to just unpack a great leadership book. and Because I'm always being asked by people to recommend a, a good book on leadership or a good biography... So we'll start doing some of that, and we may cue people in ahead of time on what's coming up so people can maybe prepare themselves ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, getting back to biographies, something that I found is, uh, well, I would say this. Every time I go to a bookstore, the first place I always go is the biography section and always looking for a great deal, clearance item or something <laughs> or some ancient uh, 
uh, book on a, a classic biography that no one else realizes is a classic but me. And that, of course, is, is awesome when that happens. But um, there are lots of biographies. And this, this is my rule of thumb. I kind of feel like that if, you, if a biography is not at least 700 pages, 700 to 1,000 is kind of the sweet spot. Maybe I, I could compromise down to 600 pages if they're a smaller character. But, uh, but I, I want a biography that uh, is extensive that, and that has lots of uh, sources. You know, there, you, there's two kinds of ways of studying a leader. You can look at an autobiography, which, of course, the, the leader themselves is writing it, or you can uh, read a, a biography, which someone else wrote, and they, of course, they're not, they're not inside the head of the leader, but they have done the study, and they have looked at all the sources. And, and so there, there's something interesting about an autobiography, but I don't, they're not always that reliable. They, they right. do give you some insights, but they're also very much interested in their own posterity and looking good and sure. explaining away the mistakes they made or the bad comments they made. And so when I really want to understand a person, I don't read an autobiography. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill said that he expected that history was going to be kind to him because he planned on writing the history. <laughs> so, uh, so you have to always kind of take it. Uh, you know, I, sometimes it's interesting to read just to get their perspective, but to really say, I I feel like I understand now this person. You need to read a bio- biography. And the other rule of thumb for me is you don't want to read a biography when it's written during that leader's tenure. So, for instance, uh, right now, uh, President Trump is president, and there are books coming out. Of course, people are trying to make, hey, well, he's popular and in the press, so they write biographies about him. But it, they're so skewed. If, yeah. you're, if you're a fan of Trump, then you write about how good he is and what a wonderful job he's doing. But, of course, we don't know how the results are going to turn out yet. We don't, we don't know how he's doing. I mean, we can see how he's doing right now, but really to evaluate a leader, you have to see the results, and that comes later. And so if you're an enemy, an opponent of Trump, then nothing he's doing is good. But again, you, you, it's hard to say. For instance, someone like Truman is typically rated now as one of the top five presidents in American history. But when he left office, he had one of the lowest approval ratings of any outgoing president. So if you read a biography written about him as he departed office and Eisenhower took over, you would have thought, well, not a very good leader. You look at the results of what he did, the lasting contribution, when all the results are in and people look at it objectively after some time has passed, then you can actually evaluate uh, a leader. Also, you know, there are certain statutes of limitations where certain records and documents are sealed for 10, 20 years after a president leaves office. And then after a certain amount of time, they are opened up to researchers and biographers. And so when, when you write a biography right away, you don't have access to all of those documents and papers. So I don't, I don't want to read something that's too soon. So like I've got a book or two on George Bush when he was president, but it's really too soon. Even, even Bill Clinton, I don't really have, I, I'm not aware yet of just an authoritative, objective biography on Bill Clinton. Certainly uh, Barack Obama, it's too soon uh, to, to 
read a definitive biography on them. So now you're you're yeah. reading about you know Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Now time enough time has passed. The data is in. Yeah, you can pretty well evaluate that. And now it's you're not you're not going to find a lot of new documents. Uh, History is not going to change that much from what they did at this point. So yeah. now you can get a definitive book, and you you can just do a Google search and just ask what are the top biographies on Abraham Lincoln, and they'll come up, and you can read people's opinions of it and so on. And some books are written by scholars, and are can be very dry. They can be very extensive in their footnotes and references, but they're dry as dust. And others are popular historians that want to make history popular and interesting to read, but they're a little careless sometimes with the facts. Yeah, a little creative license. Yeah, the, and they're trying writing. to tell a good story, you know. So I, you, the, the, maybe the last thing just to say when you're trying to find a biography is, I want someone that is as objective as they can be. I don't care if they think this is this guy uh, in the overall scheme of things is a great leader, but if they're if they were like an aide to JFK and uh, like Schlesinger wrote a pretty definitive biography on JFK, but but he was a contemporary and he admired him greatly. And so you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. And, and so some biographies are trying to make a point. I know some Christian biographies that kind of try to make Christians out of some presidents that never claimed to necessarily be an evangelical <laughs> yeah. believer in their day. But but they try to write it to kind of prove that indeed they were believers. And that may be fine. It's great to bring up quotes and various references, but I'm not necessarily interested in someone who has an agenda when they're writing a biography as much as someone who's just trying to help us really understand the complexity of this person. So anyway, I I try. I mean, biographies can be expensive when you're paying for a $1,000 book, so uh, a thousand-page book, so... Uh, I, I do a little research at times, and and there are some historians who just stand out. You know that what they write is usually quite good. And so anyway, I, I encourage people to read biographies, but do a little research. Don't just grab any book because it could be written by someone that perhaps was in a different political party and hated him. Well, it's, you're just not sure how objective it's going to be. And sure. It doesn't mean that what they're saying that they did negatively is maybe not true, but uh, but they may neglect a lot of the good stuff. And likewise, you may be a big fan, and so you tell all the good things and leave out the negative things. So as, as best as I can, I try to get someone that is going to be fair and tell both sides of the story. Twice a year, Black Bee Ministries hosts a spiritual leadership coaching workshop in the Atlanta area. The focus of this workshop is learning how to ask the right questions to help move people onto God's agenda. If this sounds like something you're interested in, the next workshop dates are October 24th to 26th and registration is open now. The early bird rate is available until September 30th and space is limited. To find out more and to register, visit blackbeecoaching.org. We'll also leave links in the show notes. That's good advice. And um, looking at a few books we have on the table now, and it seems like you usually have a pretty well-rounded read on on some of the leaders that, that you're interested in. So there's lots of biographies about just lots of different leaders. Um, why don't you tell us about these books we have in front of us now? Well, I thought for this first uh, episode, looking at a, uh, the biography of a leader, that I had to go with uh, Winston Churchill. Yeah. 
And so, uh, and there, of course, there's many, many books on Churchill. There's many books by, I think Churchill wrote about 44 books himself. But I personally, I think the best biography on Churchill is by William Manchester. It's a three-volume biography. Each one of them is a thousand or so pages. So you're looking about at least 3,000 pages on Churchill. Wow. Manchester... That's dedication. Like, <laughs> let's just get that out of the way. It is. That's, uh, that, that, that's a commitment. Well, when you live to be around 90 and you're involved in government and politics for as, as long as he was through such tumultuous times as World War One, World War Two, the Cold War, even the Boer War, and a bunch of other wars. There's lots to write. But Manchester, I love his style. He's uh, He writes as a as a, a Brit who has a great turn of phrase. I just, I love uh, his phrasing. I, I love it when you read a book and you read a sentence and you just stop and you have to do a double take and say, wow, that was really well said. I love how he described that. You know, two people can write about a sunset or a sundown or breaking up camp in the morning, but one, like Churchill or Manchester, when they write about it, it's, a, it's just a work of art. You know, they, yeah. they describe something pretty mundane and routine, but the way they described it, uh, it's beautiful. And then others just tell the facts. And so Manchester has a brilliant way, I think, of writing about Churchill. Now, Manchester is a big fan of Churchill's, and he doesn't really hide that. But he also tells a lot of the the human side and the failures and the shortcomings as well. So he, I don't mind if a guy in the in, in the balance of the good and the bad, he says, hey, this was a great leader. That's okay. I don't mind that as long as they try to also tell you the the flaws. And so Manchester does that. Now, if if those of you who are familiar with his his book, it's three volume set called The Last Lion, and then it just divides up his life, his his younger life, uh, then his uh, life kind of in the wilderness, right up until he becomes prime minister, and then the third volume. Manchester actually didn't write that third volume. He got uh, sick and older and just couldn't. Uh, put it together. People kept waiting for him to, but just didn't have uh, the stamina and strength yet to do it. So he had all of his notes and research done and gave it ultimately to a, a man named Paul Reed, who who took Manchester's notes and thoughts and put them into the final volume, which is okay, but it doesn't have the flair of Manchester. So just for the record, uh, a lot of, of Churchill's information I get from those three books. I've got some other biographies. One other one, it's an autobiography, but Churchill wrote it called My Early Life, which is just his growing up days. And it's very insightful. It's He wrote it. Uh, it's autobiographical, but uh, pretty candid about a lot of his own shortcomings and struggles in school, for instance, where he was at the bottom of his class, mm-hmm. struggled with Latin and Greek and at times could be beaten pretty severely in school for being a bad student. So that that also really helps if you're trying to look at Churchill. I recommend reading My Early Life. He, he Churchill is always an interesting writer, uh, and when he writes about his own growing up days, it's very interesting. So anyway, that's that's kind of the primary sources of when I look at Churchill. And if, if someone just asked me, okay, if I'm going to read a a serious biography on Churchill, what should it be? I would say we'll read the three volumes set by Manchester and maybe 
you might want to read My Early Life if you can get your hands on a older used copy of it by Churchill, kind of a more detailed description of his childhood. What what stands out to you about Winston Churchill? Well, you know, Churchill is like a lot of these leaders; they're not perfect. Uh, so you, you don't you don't try to read a biography about someone just because they did everything right. In fact, I think one of the reasons that Churchill is so popular even to this day is that he was such a deeply flawed human person uh, who, in, sort of like Abraham Lincoln, in some ways failed more often than he succeeded, but he just had some spectacular successes along the way. And he was a endearing enough kind of person that you, you kind of cheered him on, even though a lot of people didn't like him. Uh, but the thing about Chur- uh, Churchill, number one, is that he had a very difficult childhood in in one sense. I mean, he was his parents grossly neglected him. His father, Lord Randolph, was a, a, totally absorbed in his own life and career. His mother was, uh, uh, you, I guess, you just would say she was a pretty loose woman. She was she was married to her husband, Lord Randolph. She was an American, so. Churchill, one of the most famous Brits ever, was half American, even though he grew up in England and saw himself as a Brit. He actually, his mother was full-blooded American, so uh, that always kind of was interesting for Churchill. Mm. But his uh, mother slept with probably most of the leading politicians of the day, including wow. the, including the king. And so they, while they were out partying, in fact, I mean, it 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 boggles the mind when you actually read about Churchill's childhood. That when his, for instance, at Christmas, his parents might say that they were going to go for a Christmas getaway to the Alps, but they would leave Churchill at home with the nanny, and they would say, "We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll have these Christmas presents you can open on Christmas Day, but Mommy and Daddy will be at the Alps." Um, they at, at age seven, they sent Churchill away to a boarding school. And it was a total disaster. He uh, he was uh, bullied. He spoke with a lisp. He had a bit of a stutter. He uh, had very sensitive skin. In fact, his skin is was so sensitive that he basically had to sleep at night with no clothes on between silk sheets. I mean, if he got normal sheets on him, it would he'd break out. And so here's this pampered, uh, aristocratic in one sense, spoiled, and in another sense, extremely neglected boy. And when you read his letters that he would write to his mother or his father, he, he, he literally begged them to visit him. And there, there was an occasion where his father came to the town where his son was in boarding school. His dad was in a meeting across the street and didn't bother to cross the street just to wow. see his son. I mean, it's, it, it's heartbreaking when you see how neglected Churchill was and how much he just wanted his parents to affirm him and acknowledge that he was a person of worth. And his father, Randolph, was a member of parliament and uh, was a rising star. His father was very, he's a very emotional, larger-than-life sort of person who was not always very wise in his uh, dealings. He, uh, he made some huge blunders as a politician. He at one point, many people thought he'd become prime minister one day, but basically he made a series of huge mistakes that if he had sought counsel, if he'd gotten some advice, he should have toned down a few things. But uh, And he also uh, contracted syphilis early on as a, in his 20s, 
And that disease slowly ate away at his brain, and uh, he died uh, that disease ultimately. And in the final years of his life, he was slowly losing his mind and bodily control. And, and so he had his own demons that he was facing and just didn't have time for his son, Winston. And yet Winston admired his father incredibly. In fact, uh, Manchester says probably no father ever got more mileage out of an adoring, supportive son who did so little for his son. In fact, Churchill ultimately ran for parliament. His, his goal in life was to one day be a member of parliament and join his father to support his father in his bid to be prime minister. And Churchill wanted to, his dream was always to be in parliament with his father. He ultimately gets to parliament, but his dad is dead by then. And when his dad dies, Churchill says, it was always my dream to do that, and now I'll never have that opportunity. And so Manchester and other historians feel like a lot of Churchill's drive was to somehow prove to his dead father that he was someone that was, should not have been neglected so much, that he did have promise. Hmm. In fact, at one point, uh, Churchill used to play, he, he had over 1,500 toy soldiers, and he would, um, he would array them all into battle formations. And I mean, he understood about battalions and and regiments and all the different um, breakdowns and how you, uh, you you place the cavalry in certain positions and the cannons and so on. And even as a child, he would do that. One day, he, his father actually came into his nursery and, and Winston proudly showed his father all the, the soldiers that he had. And, uh, and his father told him that he thought he should go into the army. And Churchill, in a, a very sad moment in his, uh, his own writing, in, in his book on uh, my early life, he said, I, for years, I always thought my father just saw in me great leadership ability that could be fully expressed in the military. He said, it wasn't only until much later that I, I learned that he told me to go in the Army because he didn't think I was smart enough to be an attorney. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, so he does get sent to a military school, and that's about the first time in school that Churchill does all right. Uh, Churchill, if, if something didn't make sense to him, if his heart wasn't in it, he just he couldn't thrive in it. He, if he couldn't understand why he needed to learn Latin, no amount of beatings and punishment uh, would change his mind. And so Churchill was literally just beaten until his back bled uh, in school. He would end up at the, at the bottom of a class of 100 kids. He might be at 99 as far as the worst. And uh, in fact, Churchill wrote about his ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough, and said, famous men often come from unhappy childhoods. And I think in many ways, that's what Churchill found in his own life, that his home life was one of constantly begging his parents for just even a scrap of attention. He would write his mother every day and rarely ever got a letter back from his mother. And so here's a guy that in many ways you'd look at and say, this guy should have just been a basket case by the time he was an adult. You know, he, the other thing that's interesting about Churchill is that his ancestor, he, he came from the line of the Marlboroughs, the Duke of Marlborough. The Duke of Marlborough was a Churchill. The, the first Duke of Marlborough was named John Churchill. When he finally was rewarded by the Queen, he was made the Duke of Marlborough, but he was a Churchill. And so the oldest 
son would always become the next Duke of Marlborough. Well, Churchill's father, unfortunately, was the second son. So instead of being the Duke, he was just a Churchill. Uh, and, and so as so much of Churchill's life, he was just short of hmm. what he'd hoped for. But he was actually born in Blenheim Palace. When, when, they, when they rewarded the Duke of Marlborough, they built him the most magnificent palace in all of England. It's at Blenheim Palace. Uh, it's magnificent. I walked through it. It's uh, incredible. It's it's located near Oxford, and it uh, it's about seven acres in size. Just the the building itself, the the inside is about seven acres. His mother, people suspect that she was probably about three months pregnant with Win- with Winston when she got married. On the night that uh, he was born. There was a ball at Blenheim Palace, and his mother never wanted to miss a party. And so there she was, and while she's dancing, Winston decides to be born. And they can't even get her back to her own house. They actually pull her into the coat room where they had placed everybody's jackets and coats when they came into the to the ball, s- cleared out some space, and she gave birth to Winston there. When you tour the the palace, they'll show you that room. You can yeah. see the room where Winston was born. Uh, but in like so many ways, Winston was unorthodox and was not going to be bound by time. He's going to come at his own time, on his own terms. <laughs> uh, but he grew up seeing that palace. And the Duke of Marlborough was one of the great heroes in, in British history. And so every time he went to play at his uncle's house, he saw the the triumph of success. And Churchill grew up seeing the rewards that had come to his own ancestor for military success, political success. And he looked at that, and even as a child, he dreamed of, one day I'll do something significant too. And so the two things you see with Churchill early on is that, on the one hand, he's been incredibly neglected, uh, not loved, not cared for, not affirmed, uh, never praised for any accomplishment, even when he begged for just a slight recognition. But on the other hand, he still has this this uh, sense somehow that that he's going to do something significant with his life, even if all the teachers and all the history seems to indicate this child is never going to accomplish anything. Uh, even in his first sort of forays into dating. Uh, for his first real love basically turned him down because he didn't show enough promise. Hmm. And so his early life, you look at and say, here's a, 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 an eccentric young man that is desperate for approval and attention, desperate to make a name for himself, but this doesn't show a lot of promise. And yet, many people have determined or, or declared that he may have been the greatest leader of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, and so how do you go from such an inconspicuous sort of beginning? He, he's, he's basically about 66 when he becomes prime minister. He has, he has lost a number of elections. He's actually switched parties. He was a conservative. Then at a certain point, he gets kind of drummed out of the conservative party, so he joins the liberals. And uh, then ultimately, he leaves them and goes back to the conservatives. And yet the conservatives don't really want him. Oftentimes, he's a troublemaker, he's a backbencher, and six months before he becomes prime minister, he's seriously considering leaving politics because he's in such debt 
that he needs to find a way to earn some money and um, and and pay his bills. And so it's one of these guys, I guess part of the charm of his life is that he gets almost to the point where it seems too late. He's a senior citizen before he finally gets on the world stage in the way that he's always dreamed of. And finally, he has a great crisis that calls for his particular abilities. And at the very last moment, he, he makes it and, and experiences his dream. And I guess because of that story, he has captivated all kinds of uh, yeah. readers ever since. Yeah, and I, and I get the sense that if, if I were to uh, allow it, we, we would probably be here for many, many hours uh, yeah. uh, talking about... I've got 3,000 uh, pages of biography right yeah. here before me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, just before we wrap up, what would you say is, is one takeaway from, you know, you've obviously studied Churchill in great detail. What's a takeaway, what's an application to a leader today that, that you might uh, glean from, from his life and his legacy? Well, one thing that's interesting is he, he spoke with a lisp, he spoke with a bit of a stutter. Uh, when he would, when he'd get upset, he would kind of growl. When he was uh, dictating letters to his uh, typist, and it was very difficult to understand him at times. And yet, he is famous for his speeches. And people said that actually he would uh, practice all of his speeches in the bathtub. He spent a lot of time in the bathtub. He loved taking long baths. <laughs> and at one point, his valet heard him hollering from the bathtub, and his valet came running in, ex- thinking that he had, was late and getting bringing the towels and the change of clothes to his, uh, his boss. And he said, yes, sir, you called? And uh, Churchill said, no, I wasn't talking to you. I was addressing uh, the House of Commons. And he was giving his speech, and he, he practiced and practiced and practiced. It's, it was said uh, by one person that uh, church, when, when England faced its greatest crisis, uh, it said that uh, he said Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. Yeah, uh, he used words powerfully, but but it didn't come naturally to him. And I think I, that's important for people to realize. You may never want to get on a platform and give a speech before thousands, but leadership often in, involves words. And Churchill agonized over the right word. Mm. He didn't waste words. He said words that were memorable. He said words that made you stop and think about what he had just said, uh, words that were quotable. Long before Twitter and Facebook, Churchill was saying things that people would be talking about in the hallways afterward. And, uh, but he, he worked at it. In fact, uh, one of his best friends once said of Churchill, he said, Churchill has spent most of his life preparing impromptu speeches. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he was always preparing uh, to have the right word at the right time. That's impressive to me because a lot of people will say, uh, well, I'm not a leader because I, I, I'm not a Churchill. I can't give speeches like Churchill. But, it, but if you know his history, you'd say, well, he couldn't give speeches like right. Churchill when he started out. He had to work at it. And uh, he mastered the English language. He studied vocabulary. He used words that had punch, words that were active words, not passive words. He, and then at the, his nation's lowest ebb, when they had uh, a huge shortage of weapons and soldiers and airplanes and uh, defense, uh, he used language to mobilize the people and give them hope. And I think that's a key part of being a leader is using Absolutely. your words well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's so 
incredibly important. And if you're a leader today, you may not be giving speeches to hundreds or thousands of people, but you're writing emails. Yeah. You know, you're you're communicating uh, on a daily basis and making those communications count, I think, is, is what it's all about. And and he knew history well. He, he In fact, he said at one point he, he wished that Hitler would read the history of England because he would discover what his future was going to yeah. be. Churchill also said, uh, if you argue with the past, you may forfeit the future. And so he was someone that knew his history well, knew language well, and uh, and so because of that, he was very effective in his own day. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, review us on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. If you have questions or comments, please email us at podcast at blackbee.org.